You're listening to the Woman of Value podcast. You are about to hear the story of a woman who is following her dreams and passions and creating positive change in the world. I'm on a television show called Married at First Sight, mm-hmm. where we arrange marriages, and because it's a TV show, we do it in the most dramatic way possible, which is to um, do all of our research on these individuals in depth, but they trust us to match them with someone they could have a real marriage with forever. What's interesting to me is, is A, um, you know, it's been going on for 11 years, so it obviously speaks to people, but over 75,000 people have volunteered for this. And as we've interviewed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them, they all say the same thing. I'm lonely. I have dated. It's been painful. I can't find anyone. I can't trust anyone. Where do you find someone who's ready for commitment? They, I haven't seen them. Um, and they feel battered and bruised by age 24. Welcome back to the Woman of Value podcast. My guest today is Pepper Schwartz. She's a professor of sociology at the University of Washington, and she's the author of 25 books and over 50 academic articles on intimate relationships, marriage, dating, sexuality, and gender, and one of three on-air relationship experts on Lifetime's TV hit show, Married at First Sight, and it's heading into its 11th season. Oh, my God. And the show kind of made a a comeback in the news because uh, there's another show out that I just watched called Love, uh, Love is Blind by the same producers, and it's kind of on the same premise of uh, blind marriage and, and engagement, but there's a little bit more meeting in that one. Um, she's been the AARP Love and Relationship Ambassador and a columnist for Glamour Mag- Magazine, AARP.com, American Baby Magazine, and for many years she gave advice and news commentary on King TV and Kiro TV on, in Seattle, Washington. She has received numerous awards for her work, and among them the American Sociological Association's Award for Public Understanding of Sociology, the Simon and Gagnon Award for Academic Work in the Field of Sexualities, Mother's Voice for her book, Ten Ten Talks Parents Must Have on Sex and Character, and the International Women's Forum and Mortar Board for Excellence in Education. She is the wife of Fred Caseberg, is that how you pronounce it? Caseberg, yeah. Caseberg, and the mother of Cooper Schwartz and writer Schwartz DeFranco, and the grandmother of Ellie, Bodie, and Levy. She lives outside of Seattle on a horse ranch. Welcome to the show, Pepper. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. I wanted to, uh, we always start our show with, what does a woman of value mean to you? I just think it is somebody who has achieved their some of their own dreams and goals and along the way helped other people with theirs. Mm, I love that. So um, we all have moments when we, um, you know, you're an accomplished woman and all of us have moments when we didn't feel so accomplished or we had challenges. So take us through that time a time when you realized that you needed to make a change and claim your value? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there, there's more than one time like that. Yeah. 
Um, many years ago, I was actually writing for the New York Times uh, occasionally uh, in the style section, and I had a really brutal editor. <laughs> she, was, she was not only nasty, but quixotic. I mean, she would change her mind or something, and she, you'd do what she said, and, and she'd dump all over you. Um, then sometimes take that back, sometimes not. She was incredibly talented and smart, but she was really awful. <laughs> and at mm. some point, I just said, I don't, I don't need this. It's, you know, yes, it's a great compliment to do anything for the times, but I don't deserve this treatment. I don't deserve this unpredictability. It's making me unhappy. I'm just going to stop. Mm. Yeah, it's not easy to walk, to step down from something as prestigious as the New York Times, but it's super important to not stay in a place where you don't feel valued or you feel oppressed in some way. Yeah, I think there should always be standards of conduct. And, of course, when somebody holds a big shiny red object that you want, they can often just forget that they have to be, have to behave according to civilized rules too. But, you know, it's up to you to decide whether you're going to take it or not. Yeah, and and this message is such an important one. I I mean, I've been faced with getting paid a lot of money for a job that I felt really devalued in and made a decision to walk away as well. And I think people stay in bad jobs, they stay in bad relationships because there are certain shiny objects that that shine, (laughs) like you say, and it is hard to discern the cost of staying in a in a bad place um, because there is a cost, and so yeah, can you speak to the the cost of having if you had stayed? Like, what would it have done to you? Well, I think oddly enough, you get more and more insecure um, because you're getting battered, and and some of the criticism's correct. I mean, you know, this is a very talented editor, so you you know, it's not like you don't know that there's ways you could improve, but it starts to take away your self-esteem and and it's not worth it <laughs> so it's kind yeah. of like you know it's, it's undermining you even if even if the ultimate product is better for the input um your sense of of self your ability to learn um your sense of strength starts to be diminished and and that's um dangerous for the long run yeah totally i couldn't agree more um I wanted to bring up something totally unrelated to this, but it related sure. to you as a woman and how I've viewed you without knowing you um, because we are Facebook friends and I've been following you for a long time. And one of the things that really struck me about your values, like your values come through, and I, I wanted to let you know as an outsider in many, many different occasions I have seen you step up as a woman of value. And one was where you uh, talked about an episode of Married at First Sight with diabetes, and you were very careful to not offend people, and you gave more information on diabetes. I don't remember the exact circumstance. Um, Do you want to talk about that one a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, I, I had made a mistake on air, and I had said, Something like she had real diabetes when I meant to meant to say really serious diabetes, you know, mm. a real serious challenge. And, you know, I got 
pushback as I should have from people who had other kinds of different type one, type two, whatever, um, saying it's serious and don't don't think that type one isn't serious um, and don't think this way and that way isn't serious. And I think they were completely right. You know, I'd misspoke myself in the first place, but you know, I don't think I would have. I think I probably would have let it stand until somebody told me, you know, how hurtful and and unhelpful my mis my misspeaking was. And so I apologized publicly, and then went and looked for good information about the disease to to help other people and myself get more educated. And so I just felt like I had inadvertently done a disservice to people, and I didn't want to let that stand. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of times when you're on air you can say things that you don't necessarily mean. It can slip out. It can, the wrong word comes out, and people are very sensitive to every word you say, especially if they are afflicted with diabetes and, sure. you know, are living with it. So, um, but what I loved was how you owned it, and um, you were apologetic publicly, and that takes a certain level of, uh, ethics and a value system that not everybody has. So I respected that. Thank you. You're welcome. The other thing I wanted to talk about was when your ex-husband passed away and um, the way that you spoke about it, the way that the compassion, the kindness, um, that really touched me. So that is not something that a lot of people do or can do. And I would love for you to speak to that a little bit. Well, thank you. I mean, Art and I were married for 23 years. And for reasons that are not real important now, um, the marriage ended. But I never felt, I felt we both behaved well at the time. And I never felt he was ever a bad person. I thought he had a good heart. He was the father of my children. He loved them very much. They loved him. Um, And they were friendly. You know, we never stopped being friendly. And he remarried to a very uh, good person who he had a a good relationship with. And I'm sure he had a great relationship. I I don't mean to downgrade it in any way. Um, And... Um, and and then he went through a series of, of health issues that I certainly commiserated with him at the time, but they were all mechanical, you know, all kinds of operations on his feet and his hands and his back and you name it, and, and all in service of living a long and good life. And then he gets this dread disease, ALS, which, you know, it's a horrible disease. It, you know, all of your muscles turn to mush, you ultimately cannot do anything. Your brain is fine, but, you know, in some ways it's awful because, you know, it can be analytic about your the physical misery. And, and I, I just felt so bad for him, bad for her, and bad for my children. And I, um, when he finally decided to end his life because he was living in Canada where you could have good phys- physician assisted um, end-of-life assistance. Um, I thought he was incredibly brave and noble about all of it. His eyes, we had a very good conversation before he went. And he, very gracious. Um, I just felt for everyone. And, you know, all the little things, 
end of marriage, some of them big things. I'm not underestimating the 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 importance of the differences we had that, that made me want to leave the marriage. But, you know, at the end, you look at the core of the human being. You know, do they try to be a good person? Were they a good person? Did they love and be loved by their children? Were they a citizen of the community? I always describe art as the happy warrior who railed against various injustices of art and architecture and citizenship and, you know, Mr. Hundreds and Hundreds of Blogs. And, you know, he was a good human being living on this earth. And I, I, I wanted to express that to the world. I mean, I, I think sometimes people feel that the end of a marriage has to dissolve into recriminations. And what's the good of that? The, the bottom line is that we're all humans trying to survive in our own way, and sometimes there are tragic ends to this. And, and you know, I wanted to honor him from, for myself, for the 23-year marriage, for what he and who he was, you know, for my children. I mean, I, um, I honestly felt a good deal of anguish for what he had to go through. Yeah. And I think that that ability to feel the compassion in spite of differences is huge. I think that so many people hold on to anger and lack the ability to forgive when a relationship ends. And and people have asked me, because I'm divorced, and um, my sister actually asked me recently, how did you forgive your husband? And it doesn't even cross my mind to hold on to anger. Because like you, I don't believe he's a bad person. I think we were mismatched. I think that um, he's happier with the woman he's with now. I'm happier without him. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just we stayed a long time in a marriage that didn't work well. And it taught me so much, and it led me to become a dating coach and to really focus on healthy relationships, which is why you became someone on my radar Um, first through AARP and your articles there, um, I was just studying everything I could because I think so many of us, most of us, have no idea what healthy looks like. Well, it's not easy, you know. I mean, putting together a good relationship requires so much of one. First of all, it requires personal insight. You know, if if you can't acknowledge your own part of these things, if you can't acknowledge your own stuff, and and work to make it better, you know, how can you move forward? You'll just do the same thing with anybody else. And even in terms of maybe choosing the wrong person, you know, um, maybe it wasn't a terrible marriage, but it it wasn't one where your um, strengths were enhanced and your weaknesses modified, you know? Um, So you've got to, you've got to have some ability to look at yourself and, and then to see the world from the other person's point of view and see what's fair and what isn't and, you know, how do you create joy and how do you work through conflict? I mean, this is a, a laboratory of, of, of growth and uh, discipline and kindness and imagination. I mean, it is putting together a really good relationship for a very long time is not for the weak of heart. <laughs> It's not. It's really not. And so many people just walk around blind to their part, for sure, and they keep picking the same partner over and over again and don't know why everybody else sucks, but there's nothing wrong with them. And, um, I, I, you know, I think that 
it's interesting because when women come to work with me, they're often in their 50s, 60s. I have a woman I'm working with who's 70. And for the first time, she's learning how to communicate her needs and to set boundaries and to even know what her needs are, um, to know what it is to be alone and not to have to fill the void with somebody who she's not into. And it's, you know, I, I believe it's really never too late to learn these skills, and, but they are skills. You know, as Linda Carroll, who was just um, interviewed by me and is a friend right. of yours, um, she wrote the book called Love Skills because they're skills. <laughs> There's lots of it's skills true. involved. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. There are and I think what's great is when somebody comes to you or oh, talk to me or somebody else who is trying to help them figure out how to get what they need, um, they're a lot of the way there. <laughs> you know, yeah. because just saying, I don't get it, I don't know what I want, or I don't know what I deserve, or, I, you know, something must be working because what I want isn't getting any closer. I mean, I admire those people. It is brave to, A, take a look at yourself more closely, and, B, just take the time, you know, to prioritize it to the point where you're spending your time and offering your money to um, to really that to get insight and to change what you need to change, at least modify it, uh, understand where your challenges are. It's, I, I think people, therapy often has a bad rap because I think it makes people think it must be weak to do that, but in fact you have to be strong to do that. Mm-hmm. I so agree. You have to be strong and you have to be brave, like you said, and it's, um, you know, the, the willingness to, to take a step back and to see yourself and to really take responsibility and ownership for what we create in the world. Um, and it's, it's also really empowering. You know, I think that when we know that we are able to create a better life and better relationships, it changes everything. Yes, it does. It does. And you, you feel better at the core of who you are and, you know, that's really what you need to go have to go through life and feel like, you know, I did it well. Mm-hmm. And just, just, just that, you know, which is feeling like you know yourself and you can make some decisions that, that are in your best interest and, and you're not doing violence to anyone else and maybe you're helping other people. I mean, it's the core of what it is. It's the core of what makes us happy. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think completely selfish lives are unsatisfied lives. Um, and I think people know it, um, ultimately. I mean, you know, if you're pathological, like some people in the public eye are, <laughs> you're not going to know anything ever. <laughs> yeah. But for the rest of us, there's hope. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, yeah, I guess we probably shouldn't go there, but it's, it is a constant reminder to me of all the toxicity that is out there that people are often attracted to. And it blows my mind now, now that I'm on the other side of toxicity. Right. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, when, once you recognize signs of pathology and, and it's, it's just amazing how many people are still attracted to it, um, yeah, why, well, why is trying that? to help people figure it out, figure out why they're attracted. And I think also to understand, you know, that they're, I, I think a lot of women often think they are um, 
able to change people. And I think therapists understand that some people really resist change at such a deep and defensive level, um, an aggressive representation of themselves, that, that some things are not possible or um, are unlikely to, to happen and that the way somebody is treating other people is likely to be the way they treat you. So, you know, just to, to be able to get out of that savior mode and into a strong and respect, uh, respectful and respected position in how you want to be, is, you know, the essence of having a life that you feel good about. Yeah, yeah, so true. It's such a common thing to want to fix and save and think that we, you know, we, we get someone and then we want to mold them into somebody else. <laughs> it's kind of crazy when you think about it, but it's so common. It is. And I think it comes from the kinds of ways, at least with women, um, I think it comes a lot from having um, done that for our children and having been effective in some ways with our kids because we do that when they're younger and we can, you know, help them, you know, throughout their childhood and young adulthood. Um, and even then, when you come to a place in the road where, you know, it will be theirs to do or not do. But I think that is that early training of mothering that that comes out sometimes places it really shouldn't because it isn't going to affect it and it isn't going to be in, in one's own interest or the other person's. Yeah, correct. That's true. Um, so, Pepper, what drew you to this work? You know, <laughs> I swear I think it was in my bones. Um, I did this when I was 11 years old. <laughs> I had a group in my Naughty Pine basement in middle-class America called the Change of Life Club. <laughs> oh, my God. This is true. And um, it was because we were all getting our periods. And I thought we should talk about it. <laughs> and I had a little newsletter that I put out. We, five or seven of my uh, friends, my mother called up my um, friends' mothers and said, you know, my daughter wants to talk about sex and and we're going to look at some sex education books. And if you want your daughter to come, she's welcome. And about somewhere between five and seven kids did and did this for about a year. So, you know, I mean, we, were, we, we discussed, of course, all kinds of things that we gave each other bad information, but we could talk about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there was something about it, something about maybe because it was taboo, maybe because there was an opening, you know, to be an expert or to talk about it in a way that, you know, helped me be central in my girlfriend's life. I don't know why this strange thing happened, but um, but it did. And I think while I never thought it as a career at the time, mind you, um, I was much more focused on being an actress or a lawyer or God knows what other things I did. But um, but I think I was, um, and I was with a mother, you know, my mother would be, you know, way over 100 if she were alive today. Um, a mother who was ahead of her time, he felt that was something we should talk about. So, so the combination of really enjoying the fact that we were learning something, looking at something taboo, something my mother obviously approved of, you know, something that gave me a certain cachet, 
Um, I think that's when it started. And then it restarted at the women's movement when I was at Yale and, you know, couldn't have been in a more, couldn't have been in a more centrally male place in many ways where gender and sexuality became political. And then it sort of regenerated um, in various ways, my thought to, to have um, answers to questions. I think what then there was the first um, human sexuality course um, on a college campus since uh, Kinsey. And, you know, I just, I just, a friend of mine and I decided to do a book at the time because it was about the first year of women at Yale. And we took uh, discussion leader roles in the, um, these new uh, class, this new class in human sexuality by Philip Sorrell and his wife, who were wonderful people. And I read the books that were assigned and I thought, oh my God, this is terrible, <laughs> you know, limited. And so I thought, I'm switching horses here and I'm going to do some, because I, I was getting a degree in sociology and law. I thought that was where I was going to sit. Um, I thought I wanted to be a divorce attorney. Uh, and I read all this material and thought, no, I, I, I know what some of it's bones. I know it's wrong. I know in my bones it's sexist, but there's no data to, to contradict it. All I can do is say it's not or is too. And so I just turned to research on relationships and sexuality at that time. I, I love that you, that you did this um, at 11 years old and that you <laughs> knew, like, I mean, who does that? You know, really? <laughs> um, but also that you followed the breadcrumbs to the career that you have today. I think, you know, tuning into your intuition, you know, really feeling into it and you know, a lot of people feel that intuitive hit and they ignore it and they end up continuing with like a career in law and they're, they're not happy years down the road and they're like, why is this not resonating for me? But you followed, you followed the clues and, and look where you are today. Amazing, like 25 books and all these academic articles and awards and appearances on TV, so your actress um, came to life too, right? <laughs> you never know. You never know what's going to be useful to you in your background, you know? It's true. It's true. Um, but yeah, this, this whole field of sexuality, dating, gender, I mean, especially today, we have so many challenges. And I was just getting my hair cut this morning, I was talking to my, this, the person cutting my hair about, um, about the, the lack of communication today and it, especially in the dating world with apps and um, just people ghosting and, and treating each other horribly, I, you know, no accountability. I, I'd love to hear your take on, you know, where we're going with the whole dating world today and what you see for the, for the future well, you know, it's a little worrisome because I think people are um, jumping to conclusions based on very little information. Um, and I think the use of text a lot um, gives them, you know, they, they think they're talking to each other, but it's a pretty crude mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like there's 
some very sad things going on in terms of people being able to see each other um, without doing a lot of damage along the way to themselves or others yeah. for that matter. And one of the data I take is, you know, I'm on a television show called Married at First Sight, mm-hmm. where we arrange marriages, and because it's a TV show, we do it in the most dramatic way possible, which is to um, do all of our research on these individuals in depth, but they trust us to match them with someone they could have a real marriage with forever, um, and they meet at the, um, at the altar. So this is a very extreme form of of marriage. Um, mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me is, is a um, you know it's been going on for eleven years, so it obviously speaks to people. But over seventy five thousand people have volunteered for this, and they all say the same thing: I'm lonely. I have dated. It's been painful. I can't find. Anyone. I can't trust anyone. Where do you find someone who's ready for commitment? They, I haven't seen them. Um, and they feel battered and bruised by age 24. What has struck me is how many young people feel like old people about how, how it's been in the, in the day. And it does. It feels like, like a ring, like, a, like people are opponents as opposed to trying really well to see you know, what's there for each other and to be decent and kind about it. I think the technology has allowed people to be so unkind, things they would never do face-to-face, things they would not say that way. And so by the time they even have a face-to-face meeting, there's been some stuff said and done. And then because they feel fungible and other people think they are, they, they often go through people without, you know, like a 20-minute coffee and that's it. They don't get to know anything more. So... I think it's very hard on people, and, and the, the good news is that the tech world, all of the dating sites really let you find other people you would not find otherwise. I think it's terrific that way. It does connect people, but the level of civility and kindness and in-depth ways to get to know somebody has retracted enormously. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm in it. Um <laughs> I'm 12 years post-divorce and I've had a few relationships, but this whole online dating thing has become so unkind. And um, I started calling people on it. I just, you know, people who we were in the middle of a great phone conversation, I'll call you, can I call you again, and then disappear. And we haven't even met yet. And, and, you know, I'm like... Mm -hmm. I started reaching back out and saying, hey, we had a nice connection. What happened? And a couple of them, yeah, I'm just like sick of it. I'm, I'm going to be mm-hmm. honest with people from now on, and I'm telling my clients to do the same thing. I, you know, people, I had a client who was on four or five really connected dates with somebody, and mm-hmm. they were moving towards intimacy. It was really lovely, and then he ghosted her. And it, it it never happened to her before. She was so gobsmacked by it, and um, she's getting ready to reach out to him. It's been a month or two, and she's just like, you know, it's not okay for you to do that. Like, this, it was hurtful, and I, I just want to let you know, like, was there, you know, it, it was hurtful, and is there a reason why you did that? 
and it's not not like I want to date you again, but like hello, let's let's call let's call it what it is and stop just stop disappearing. Stop like have the courage to to say I don't think we're a good fit or I'm busy at work right now. It's not going to work out. Whatever it is. But, yeah, no, I I think it's holding people accountable to bad behavior and just telling them, you know, just say, you know, it would maybe it's awkward to say, look at, I really enjoyed this, but, you know, I decided it's not going to end up happily ever after. And I just want to thank you for the time, but but it's it's not what I want to do. It. Yes, that would be difficult, and yes, that would be the honorable thing to do. I mean, there's there's a kind of uh, uh, anonymity that's possible under these circumstances that people take advantage of and are just careless. They, may, they just don't think about what it feels like to somebody who's um, been that way. I, I, I did online dating as well. Um, and I also, um, actually, I met my husband that way, so I'm not going to uh, say that it's all bad, of course. Yeah. But, but, but I do remember a guy that I really did well with, and I called him back and I said, um, what... Uh, what happened? I thought you and I had a good connection. Uh-huh. And he said, well, we really did. And he was, he was embarrassed. <laughs> and he said, but, you know, I decided I wanted someone much younger. And, okay. and so I just concentrated in the other direction. And I said, well, thanks for the, you know, I mean, and I really did. I didn't punish him for saying you wanted someone younger. I just <laughs> said, thank you for being honest and thank you for letting me know and no problem. And yeah. he and I actually had a kind of a, a on and off nice acquaintanceship. I, you know, we run not in the same circles, but occasionally overlapping one, and that's fine now. But, mm-hmm. but you know, I deserved that answer, and he deserved that that moment of awkwardness. You know, it's like, come on, you know, be a human being and do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think I I love that you called him on it and that he admitted it. And I was once part of a panel of dating experts in a room of like two hundred singles, and. One of my clients was in the audience, and she, she asked the question, why do so many men say they're going to call you after a first date, and then they don't do it? And she goes, actually, one of the guys who did that to me is here in the audience, and oh, I, well. don't want to, you know, I don't want to embarrass him. He doesn't have to stand up and tell us why he did it, but I'm curious, and he got up. It was shocking. <laughs> and he said, um, I, I was taught that, I should be polite. And so that's the polite thing to say. And all the women were saying, like, it's really not. Like, you don't have to say, I'll call you. You can just say, I had a really nice time. You know, don't make but a false But I think he's problem. right. I think that's what a lot of people think, that it's the right thing to say. Yeah. I think what it is, it's the easy thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's the cowardly easy thing to say. Right. Yeah, it would be nice if we were all honest and open and, and transparent and accountable. We'll create but that world. But just by saying that, I mean, he helped a lot of people because people need to know that when somebody does drop them or ghost them, more often it's just out of a lack of bravery. It's not it's not a um, a total vote about who they were or even who they were in that relationship. Um, I remember in this book I wrote, um, Prime, which is a kind of a memoir of me dating between age 55 and 60, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, my, I developed this pineapple theory about myself. And, and uh, my pineapple theory is um, that I don't like pineapple. 
I actually, if I get a fruit salad, I'll take the pineapple off. There's some people who that's their favorite fruit, love pineapple, and that's the first thing they go after. So it's not about, it's not what the pineapple is. Pineapple is just a fruit. Some people like it, some people don't. The, it's not bad because some people don't like it. It's just taste. And that's the way you think people have to think about themselves. You know, you're a pineapple. Some people are going to like it, some people aren't, but, you know, a pineapple is a perfectly good fruit, and you're a perfectly <laughs> good person. I like it. <laughs> I, I think that people take a lot of things as rejection when it's not, especially if you haven't met, if you've only been on one date. I mean, right. people don't even know you yet, and they don't know you enough to reject you. Um, but it's it's uh, it's usually not at all personal. It's just different taste, and we all can have different taste. I love it. Um, I, I wanted to just bring up something that, that was interesting when I Googled you. One of the first things that came up was your height. <laughs> and, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so there's been a lot written about how you have a, you're a small person, but you have a large presence. Um, so how, how, how do you handle comments about, about your height and, you know, how, how has it affected your life? <laughs> <laughs> it is so funny because I am very small and I never think about it. Um, well, I do. I mean, I do uh, sometimes because uh, I'm 4'10". Um, I remember this one woman, I spoke at the University of Arizona, and she uh, came up to me. She said, I want you to know how meaningful your speech was to me. And I, of course, was moved, and I said, uh, what part of it reached you? And she said, oh, no part of the speech. It's just that you're so small, and I'm small, and I never thought I could achieve anything because I'm too small. <laughs> and then you are. You're small, and you achieve something. So that really <laughs> <laughs> Your height inspired her. <laughs> I mean, okay, well, that was not what I was thinking she was going to say. Um, and I am, you know, I am small, but I, I think uh, it just depends on the ego you have. I mean, if you have self-esteem problems, you're going to look at whatever you are and find, you know, fault with yourself and say, oh, I'm not this enough or I'm not that enough. And I remember when I wanted to be an actress and um, and I did summer stock for, for, for years as a teenager, so it's, I get into it. Um, and there were good reasons for not continuing. But I did worry about it then because I was smaller. You know, you know what kind of parts would I be okay with? But but that was an ego problem, not a size problem, because there's lots of things that small. It's just, it's just, you know, you, you're you looking at ways to pick on yourself when you're young. And, and what's, you know, everything's wrong with you. You know, every, you know most people, and including myself when I was young, like, this is wrong and that's wrong, et cetera. Uh-huh. But, you know, as I, I, I've always had a big personality. I've always had, you know, probably a better ego than I should have had. Even. And um, I just feel like, okay, that's one of my properties. I am small. I never let um get to me. Um, I've had a few husbands. One was 6'3", my present husband 6'1". I didn't go looking for big guys. And, in fact, I would have preferred not because I get, you know, stiff neck. Um, but, but, you know, it's like, you don't think about what's, um, I've always been a rider and, you know, horses are big, you know, maybe there's something from being small that makes you want to conquer big things. I don't know. Um, but I, but I don't feel like anything is, um, is out of my reach because I'm smaller. I mean, the worst part of being small is that you gain weight easier. Um, but, um, 
you know, okay, everyone has a burden. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And so, you know, that's mine. And, you know, yes, I have to get everything shortened. And so you got to add, add uh, cost onto anything you buy, you know, below the waist. Um, but, but, you know, it's all small stuff. Everybody's got stuff to carry. I could put, do a huge list of gifts. And um, I, think, I think it has... There, there are things about being small. Like I don't like being in big crowds because I can't see anything. You know, it's like I use my husband as my periscope. What's going on? You know, <laughs> um, I can't, you know, um, I have big dogs. I'm pretty strong, but you know, there's, if one of my dogs want to get, you know, really feisty, I'm so so far I can control them. But you know, it's you know, if I was six feet two and had, uh, you know, a, a lot more muscle, I think, you know, it would be better. Um, I just think it's my fact of life. And I actually think it affects people with me much more than it affects me. Yeah, I'm just me. My perspective is the one I've had. I've been small all my life. I wasn't like, you know, tall in some class and then stopped going and everybody else got bigger. I was just always small. So it's the way I look at the world. But I think a lot of people, because I am small, they expect me because I'm a public person, because I'm on TV, because I've done all these other things, that I'm going to be tall. And so, unfortunately, they're undisciplined. And almost the first thing they'll say is, oh, and I know as soon as they do that, they're going to say the next words, which is, I didn't know you were so small. And I don't know why they feel the need to tell me that, right? You know, but they do, and I try and be good humored about it because you know it's their first time knowing it, but it's not my first time hearing it. Right. <laughs> so I just like okay, you know. I think I know I'm small. It's okay. Um, <laughs> right. and try and you go from shocked. there. Like really, I thought I was six feet tall. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. I mean, it is because I do get distorted. I mean, I'll see myself in a picture like with my colleagues from Mary First Aid, and they're towering over me, and I go, oh. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> but you have a great attitude about it. And I, and I think that so many people define themselves by their appearance. And it becomes part of their character instead of just something you're born with. And it, it, it really comes up a lot in the dating world with, you know, men who are not up six feet tall. You know, it's like so many women want these tall guys and it's not oh, a character no. trait. It's <laughs> it is it is also a very small percentage of men out there who are that tall or taller. And um but that's just a whole other discussion. Like the relationships from um married at first sight, um the success rate of those marriages as opposed to people who met the regular, you know, way either online or in real life. Um, what is the what is the percentage of success of these couples? Well, it's about a third, and I think the success rate of the way nor- normal people do it or average people do it is more like fifty percent. So we're not as good. Um, you know, would we like it at the exact rate? Other, you know, like fifty percent. You know, we would we would certainly love that. I do think we keep getting better at it, but as you know, love is a tricky biggie, uh, tricky business, attraction is a tricky business, and also, you know, trying to make sure that the person who presents to us is actually the person they are, and that's always not entirely the truth. Sometimes people, they, they con us, just like they con the person that they might have met otherwise. You know, they know how to come across as, 
you know, honest and open and ready, and they're not. But, mm. you know, we try hard to filter that out. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. All right, I'm going to ask a few quick questions, and then we're going to wrap. So um, what, was, what is the best advice you can give to a woman who wants to become more empowered? Learn to like and respect yourself. You can't go forward if you don't really like who you are and understand why you deserve respect and, you know, why you can move forward in the world and get the life you deserve. And if you are not solid with yourself, you will always have holes, vulnerable holes that undermine you because, you know, you, you haven't invested in yourself. You don't believe in yourself. And I don't mean be cocky. Not, nobody's perfect. Everyone has vulnerabilities and difficulties. But, but bottom line, you have to think you're okay and that you're more than okay. You're, you're really good. You're really, you can take on a lot of the world. Um, or at least you can create a program and a, and a direction that'll get you where you want to go. You've got to have that belief. If you don't, you have to bring yourself more until you're ready to, to conquer whatever it is that's uh, in front of you that you need to conquer. I love it. Great. Uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, good question. I think I would tell her not to be so frenetic, <laughs> not to be so insecure, just let life happen a little bit. Um, and probably I was a little needy for, for approval. I had some very critical parents and, you know, it was hard to be good enough. And um, I think I would maybe be a better psychologist and say, you know, their, their criticisms are, you know, depression generation where they're so afraid of, of failing and having their children fail because they, grew up in such dire circumstances to be a better psychologist and not just be reactive to the demands that they put on me. Yeah. Uh, totally hear you on that one. And finally, <laughs> finally, Pepper, first of all, I, I just have enjoyed our conversation so much and I thank you for bearing with me as we've had some communication glitches uh, and, and really sticking this out and making this happen. So thank you. Um, tell everybody how they can find you, and then I have one more question. Sure. I think there's um, pepperschwartz.com. I'm on all, all of the, you know, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I have a romantic travel spot called placesforpassion.com, pepperschwartz.com. Awesome. So finally, Pepper, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, gosh, I think I'd love to be remembered as a uh, good friend, good mom, good wife, someone who loved animals, someone who loved people, and perhaps made sexuality a safer and better place to experience and who made relationships more likely to be loving and fair. Um, I, I just want to be seen as a person who tried to um, a person who tried to live up to my own expectations, hold myself accountable, and what you know, love and kindness into people's lives, and sometimes you know maybe some knowledge, <laughs> as well. And and uh, through through the TV show or through my classes, you know, I I want people to 
um, know more about themselves and the, their relationships, and, and hopefully I have added knowledge that meant something to them in their lives. You know, it's a big, long life. I've been lucky enough to be in it a long time, and so, you know, I see myself as a totality and not just one thing, but, you know, you want to think, yeah, that she did some good in the world. Oh. Well, you have created an incredible legacy already, and I so appreciate you being here to share your wisdom with us. If you would like to step more fully into your value, grab a free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Becoming a Woman of Value on my website, thewomanofvalue.com. Just click the link at the top of the homepage. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to click the subscribe button in your listening app. And if there's something in this episode that inspired you, please share it with others. Because the more we share these inspirational stories, the more women of value we will have in this world. I'll see you next time.